We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. When I first started to practice as a therapist over 35 years ago, my clients would often complain about being depressed. It was the great enemy. But somewhere over the years, and I can't put my finger on when, the number one problem shifted and became anxiety. So I make no apologies for covering the topic frequently on my podcast, because if you're consumed by anxiety, how can you lead a meaningful life? So far, I've discussed sitting with anxiety, making it your friend, and the neuroscience behind it. I've also looked at getting in touch with your subconscious to feel less anxious. But this time, I thought I would approach anxiety from a practical standpoint, with tools to lower and manage your anxiety. And what happens when you throw stress into the mix as well? My witness today is Rennie Mill, who is a clinical psychologist. She trained in South Africa, but now makes Australia her home. She's the author of Anxiety-Free, Drug-Free, Change Your Thinking and Empower Your Mind in 90 Days and the Anxiety Management Workbook, a 10-session program to help you beat anxiety. And if you're a therapist yourself, she's also written a handbook so you can help your clients as well. So, Renee, what in your childhood prepared you for a life dedicated to helping people combat anxiety? Gee, that's a fascinating question. You know, I didn't think about it till I was an adult, but my mother never had a mother. Her mother died giving birth to her. And I realized my mother was quite anxious, although she in many ways, she was a very good mother and we always, she just recently passed away. And we were talking about how she was never a victim from it and was actually a very loving mother and was able to attach and so on. But there was a high level of anxiety. And I particularly thought when I moved to Australia, because I moved to join my sister and my parents were moving, I was very lucky, nine months later. In those nine months, I saw all my mother's anxiety and abandonment issues come up. And then I thought about over the years. So I think subconsciously, I was always aware of this level of anxiety. And certainly in my mother's generation, there was no treatment or even talking about it. She used to use the word, I'm highly strung. She could laugh at herself. And that's what we used to say, you know, okay, she's highly strung. But I think it was there, you know, and I've often thought about it and actually even articulating it now. I'm actually particularly interested, although that's not the topic of my book, but with attachment and anxiety and abandonment, I think they're often very tied in with one another. So tell me more about how they're tied in with one another, because that sounds interesting. Well, I very often treat patients who say to me, I don't know why I'm anxious. My life is actually quite good. And they'll also say, I've learned a lot of the common tools and techniques. I do meditation every day and I breathe and I exercise and all the usual things, but I still find that I'm anxious. And then frequently when I take a history, and I'm actually sorry that I've never actually, like an academic 
taken actual formal numbers, but I've been in practice, I think, a bit longer than you since 1982. <laughs> so I feel so bad when you say 35 years. A lot of people actually have had attachment issues. So frequently those patients have either been born prematurely and were put into incubators or separated from their mom. There's quite a high percentage of people who've been adopted. And then another really interesting one is a number of them, high percentage as well, have had mothers who were depressed and so were unavailable emotionally. So I started noticing this sort of cycle of why am I anxious? My life was actually good. Sometimes I've even had what they call a good childhood, but it was something in their early few days sometimes or few weeks that caused an attachment issue. And then neurobiologically, that pattern stays with them, that anxiety stays with them. So let's just for a second look at the sort of biological pattern you're talking about. What, what is going on in the brain with anxiety? So I put it very simply. I mean, I don't want to go into all the neurobiology, but very simply is if you have an abandonment issue, if a baby is abandoned, and that can mean that mother's unavailable or that, as I say, the child's in an incubator and isn't touched for a number of hours, that's catastrophic for a baby because how a baby feels safe is that mom is available and, and holding me because I'm, I could die if I didn't have a protective adult here. So it's catastrophic and that sets off this fear response or sometimes a freeze response. And what then happens is the Hebbian principle says neurons that fire together wire together. So what that means is certain neurons fire together, which is a stress response. And the more it fires, the thicker it gets. So it literally, are, the way I explain it, it's like a child's railway track. Once there is a track, it just goes round and round unless you undo that track. So if the child has had a few months or has had this catastrophic reaction and it's never treated, then everything that happens later on, they see a dog and they're anxious or their parents go on holiday and they feel it or they go to school and they tease. It could be anything. That track gets thicker and thicker. And so very often when people come to me, they also say to me, I've done CBT and it didn't help or I've done therapy because it hasn't been targeting, in inverted commas, undoing that wiring. So unless you actually undo that wiring, it stays there and you can do bits and pieces, but the wire, it's not that you're hardwired. We don't talk like that anymore. You can undo it. You'd have neuroplasticity, but you need to actually practice new thoughts and behaviors that become thicker, actually, than that other railway track, if you like. Why do you think anxiety has become so much more prevalent? I think it's external factors and societal factors. And I think as psychologists, sometimes we don't look at that enough. I think it's family factors. And then I think we are bringing up generation of fragile people, less resilient people. So I like to follow the work of people who talk about anti-fragility as an example. I think the way parents bringing up their children is contributing. So all these factors together are contributing factors. I think that rather than looking at anxiety as a sort of blanket term, I think it might be useful to sort of look at different types of anxiety. So I've identified three. I don't know if you've got more. Rumination, catastrophizing, and sort of immobilized, sort of panic. Have I captured them all or do you think there are other kinds of anxiety as well? Well, I always think about, no, I, the one is the thinking, the rumination. And I think about the physiological responses that come with anxiety. That's a big part of anxiety. 
So catastrophizing is just one way of thinking. So there are different ways of thinking that lead to anxiety. Ruminating, going over and over with no purpose, being catastrophic, and the other thoughts that lead to anxiety as well. And some people, it goes into being sort of immobilized or even sort of panicking and just completely closing down. Yes. So I believe that all feelings have purposes. So a question I often ask my clients is, what is this feeling trying to tell you? What do you think anxiety is trying to tell us? Sometimes anxiety is there to tell you something, but I I wouldn't call it a feeling. I'd call it a response to danger or perceived danger. So sometimes there is real danger, but when we talk about anxiety, it's about there's no real danger, but as I explained earlier, your brain is firing as if there is danger. But having said that, often people who come and see me are very out of touch with their feelings. And one of the first things we talk about is how is your life impacting you? How does it make you feel when someone talks to you like that? And anxiety is when people often are scared of expressing their feelings And I I describe that physiological response. It's a bit like being in a pressure cooker. You don't want to feel those feelings or you're scared of what they will reveal. So I see anxiety as a response sometimes to feelings that we're afraid of. And if somebody is like you who had an anxious mother, that you obviously, as a child, this is all happening unconsciously, you obviously don't want to make your mother anxious. That's the last thing you want to do. So you're going to sort of be turning down your feelings, aren't you? And so, you know, anxiety might be telling you that there is something that needs to be attended to. And so, you know, it is important to actually look at that question as well. That's right. So what happens when you throw stress into the mix as well? Because it seems that anxiety and stress often go together, like sort of the evil stepsisters sort of kind of thing in our life. Well, this is the point that there are many causes for anxiety and stress can be one of them. So stress is perceived overload. You're at work and you feel you can't cope. It's not the amount of work you're doing, it's how you perceive it. And a lot of us do very well with stress and we need stress and we and it motivates us to go. And then there's the tipping point where we start not being able to sleep or, as you mentioned, we start ruminating and that can tip us over into, oh, I'm in danger and we can have a fight or flight or freeze response. So sometimes that's how the two interact. The the anxiety is the response to danger and stress can make you feel that there's danger. And you say stress makes you stupid. Tell me about that. (laughs) So again, if we imagine the railway track, and if you imagine that at the top of your spinal cord is the brainstem, if that's firing, the railway track's going around and it's firing all the time, I'm in danger, I'm in danger. What happens is the top part of your brain, it's different parts of the cortex, and it can't really function. So you don't problem solve very well when you're in high states of stress or anxiety because all your resources are going into being vigilant, perceiving danger, trying to protect yourself, all the different things that we do. And that's one of the reasons I got into doing CBT because I'm actually analytically trained was because I realized the importance of calming the brain and undoing that cycle, that railway track, and then being able to delve deeper when we felt safe and then being able to problem solve better. So I felt sometimes I do it in a sort of a sequence because while that brain is firing, you, as I say, you can't think clearly and you don't make good decisions. 
So that sounds really interesting. First, I think let's very quickly explain to people what an analytic training is, because it's sort of like the opposite of CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very structured. It's sort of looking at the behavior, hence cognitive behavioral therapy. And analytical therapy is completely the opposite. So explain to us about analytical psychology. So when I trained in the 70s, I was in Johannesburg. CBT wasn't around yet. And the university I was at, as I say, was very analytic. And there was one behavioral psychologist, a lecture we all sort of sneered at. That was the culture there, like ridiculous. And so analysis was very much about exploring the past, understanding things in the room with our patients, like transference, what they're projecting onto us, so not sharing anything with our patients not even having a family photograph in the room, and then whatever they're bringing, interpreting as something reflecting of their unconscious. So it's about bringing the unconscious into the conscious mind. Classically, it involves talking about dreams or doing guided meditations, looking for synchronicity and various other techniques like that. That's very right. different, very different from CBT. And it's very different for the therapist as well, because in analytic work, the therapist is the guru. If you remember, there was a book called If You Meet the Guru on the Road, Kill Him. There was the idea that these <laughs> therapists think they're gurus. And often patients didn't know what was going on because they would come in, certainly the way I was trained in a Kleinian way. You don't start the session. You make a few very deep interpretations. The patient talks most of the time. And often the patient doesn't know the direction and they've got to trust the process. And there isn't a treatment formulation or a plan. It's about bringing the unconscious into the conscious mind. But what I noticed is that often people didn't change. They would understand very deeply what was going on, but they still were anxious because, as I say, the railway track was going around and all the understanding in the world didn't undo that. But what I didn't mention is that before I was a clinical psychologist, I was actually an occupational therapist. This was before computers and it was before, you know, the internet, and we used activities. It was very, very practical. There were no screens. And again, the psychologist sort of looked down at, we were, I still remember myself as a little student in my little hot pants and we'd go and drag people out of bed who were depressed. And we had the most fantastic facilities. We'd get people to cook and plan their day and do yoga and soccer drama groups. And they would be with us seven out of eight hours of the day. And wow. everyone would go, but that hour of psychoanalysis, that's really real work. But when I noticed that people weren't changing, I thought, you know, I thought about some of the patients and I thought, you know, there's some value in what CBT came in in the 80s in activity, in socializing, in actually changing behaviors, in actually what we did, dragging people out of the bed in the sweetest way. We got people moving. So I saw that analysis and I still love it, but sometimes people just don't change. It's not enough. And that CBT incorporates changing behaviors, getting people moving, all those things is equally valid and has a place. So I dropped my cynicism and I became more accepting and tolerant. <laughs> and now I'm one of, I crossed over. <laughs> but it sounds like you've brought some of the depth ideas into your ebb flow method. Yes, I think I have. And even the way I, I engage with patients, I mean, I, I take my time and I get to know them really well. And I'm, I don't just say, go home and do some breathing. You know, I do see them in, and my treatment method is very holistic. It does involve all those things. So you talk about a four-step process. What do you mean by that? 
to deal with anxiety? Yes. So the four-step process is teaching people. So often people come and say, as I say, I've been tried this, tried that. It teaches people to stop and to make a choice to do things differently. So step one, they can bring an event. It can be any event that causes them anxiety or stress. They then, step two is all the feelings, thoughts, physical sensations, memories, whatever stirred up by the event. So it can be something quite simple, but when they fill in step two, it's quite revealing. So, you know, it could be anything. You're stuck in traffic or someone cuts you off and you bring it as an event and then all this rage comes out. And then at some point, can be straight away, can be the next day. Step three, you start off saying, suddenly I realized I was anxious and I have choices. And the idea is that I'm ready to move on. I, I validated all my feelings and moving on means I'm going to choose and I have 27 tools to help me move on. One of them might be what you were mentioning, sitting with it. I'm actually, I'm going to just accept it and I'm going to sit with it. I'm going to stop trying to get rid of it. But there are all these other thoughts. So for example, my favorite tool, the one people like the most, deals with catastrophic thinking. So it could be, and what I'd, what it is, I give people a ruler and it's basically, is this event life-threatening? You ask yourself, the fact that somebody cut me off, was my life in danger at any point? And if it's a no, I, then you tell yourself, I don't need fight or flight. It's a problem that needs to be solved. Maybe I still have to go and talk to the person or improve my driving or change my route or do something, but I don't need fight or flight for it. And it's not saying how big is the problem. People often will go, you know, I've got this massive problem. It's not going, how big is your problem? It's going, is it life-threatening or not? It could be a huge problem. You've lost your job, but is your life in danger? If it's not, you don't need fight or flight. Calm the brain. Let your neocortex now solve the problem. So that's step three. And they're all, they're four different types of tools, thinking tools, behavioral tools, feeling tools, and calming tools. And then step four, which I think is vital, is what I call the self-motivation process. And in that, I get people to reflect on their growth, not the outcome, but even if they've changed in the slightest way, even if they just took a moment to pause and go, I'm noticing that I'm anxious and I have a choice, I'm not ready to change, but I can, at some point, maybe I want to move on, that in itself could be the growth. So any small growth, which then keeps people motivated, and the other thing that I've introduced there well, I've, is a value system. I call it self-leadership. So I talk about, I'm very into values. What character trait have I strengthened by calming down my anxiety? So often it's things like, you know, compassion for the other driver or patience or self-discipline. And that's very motivating to want to keep growing. So that's what the four steps are. So there's two things I want to pull out from that. The first one is, the idea you have choices, and I think that is really important. Can you expand on that idea that you have choices when it comes to anxiety? The idea is that, and this is something I, I, the expression I often use is, I encourage people to start thinking about themselves as being the boss of themselves, to actually learn that there's a self. Some of this relates to acceptance and commitment therapy, but it's not for me not self as context. There's a self, and I can observe my symptoms, and I can choose to behave in this way. I can feel angry, but I can choose whether I'm going to punch someone in. I might need to be helped how to do that. 
But if I don't want to keep punching someone, I can feel the anger and validate it, but I can learn other skills to express myself differently. So I can have self-awareness and then I have a choice of what I want to do with that self-awareness. It can take training, but the idea that I can't help myself, or as I said earlier, that I'm hardwired or I'm just an anxious person, it's not true. We can undo the wiring. We can learn new behaviors. We can do things differently, even if we have the anxious feeling. And I'm going to say it again because it's so important you have choices. And just because you've made one choice automatically for the last goodness knows how many years doesn't mean the next time round you can't make a choice. That's right. And that is a liberating idea and a really important one. And the second thing I wanted to point up from what you said was the importance of actually being aware and measuring your growth. Because I think when we've got the anxious mind going, we tend to not see it, do we? Absolutely spot on. So what will happen is people are changing and I can see it. And then they'll go, oh, I don't think this is helping. But because I have my manual and I've written it, I say, let's look back a few sessions. What were your scores then? Or what did you write about then? Absolutely right. So when people are a bit negative, they don't see their own growth. And I think the other thing that looking into how you work that I think is really useful is the idea of practice and repetition. Because with everything in this world, unfortunately, we're being sold, you can do it in you know, change your life in seven days sort of kind of idea. And, you know, if you meditate five times, you're going to notice a difference. So why is practice and repetition so important? Yeah, so this is the core of my program and why my CBT program is different to classic CBT is that I've put it into a manual and I encourage people to, so we know neurobiologically it takes 90 days to change a habit or a way of thinking or a behavior. So the idea is that people do a worksheet a day for 90 days. And as I say, so the Hebbian principle will say that the neurons that were wired together will unwire and new neurons will fire together and wire together. So you develop a new neural pathway. So the next time someone, after 90 days, the next time someone cuts you off, you'll automatically not have fight or flight because you now know it's not catastrophic. You might still be a bit upset. You might, you know, vent a little bit. You might still be very upset. (laughs) But you won't have that because you've trained your brain that that isn't catastrophic. So 90 days of noticing, changing your behaviors, making choices, rewires the brain. And it's very important. So it's not enough just to know what you should be doing. It's not enough to just do it five times. It's to actually do it enough times. But then I do encourage people to make it a life practice. You know, the worksheet, I still do it. I run women's groups where we do them. It's not even, you don't even have to be anxious. It's really... We all need to emotionally regulate and we all need to do it. And we keep doing it. We keep our brain calm and we're much cleverer. Just expand on emotional regulation because that is something that is really important. That's how I originally actually got into the anxiety is that I was used to be do a lot of work in emotional intelligence. And it's about... When you're dysregulated, when you are angry and you can't, you, in, in America, they say you're mad, you're irrational and you can't think, that doesn't serve you very well. And also you are creating this neural circuit. So it's a big part of being emotion intelligent, making good decisions, forming good relationships, not being self-destructive to be able to recognize your emotion and then regulate it. And so that's when I first developed this four-step process. So recognize what you're feeling and then find a way to regulate it. So 
We're not talking about denying anger or suppressing it. We're acknowledging it, but we're managing it in a, in a, diff- in a constructive way. So let's imagine that we have a partner or a boss or a colleague who tends to be anxious. What do we do? Because we've got to live with this person in some shape or form. Well, it's fascinating, but it's a question I'm often asked by parents. And the idea is that we have to work on being calm ourselves because we now know that we have a social brain and we literally fire off each other. So if I work on being calm, I can at an unconscious level, not that I'm responsible for my partner's anxiety, but I won't escalate his anxiety or I could even calm him down. So that's one of the best things you can do. The second thing is that... Uh, just be, just before yeah. you carry on, can I just jump in Please. there? Never try to calm down your partner. Focus on calming down yourself because yes. often if you try to calm down your partner, generally it will be heard, whether you mean it or not, as getting them to deny their feelings. And asking somebody to deny their feelings generally makes them feel that same feeling more often. So I think the calming has to be with yourself because the calmer you are, you'll be sending out calm vibrations. Let's talk a bit new agey. You'll be sending out calm vibrations. But yeah. if you get anxious too, or you get angry too, you're piling one thing on top of the other. So I don't think you meant that, but I think it was really important to say, please don't try and calm your partner down. They're yeah, responsible that's what I was for saying. their yeah, feelings. Absolutely. Don't try. You're exactly. responsible for yours. Correct. The one thing you can change is your feelings in the interaction. Correct. So it's about emotionally regular. And so you need to, you know, this is the person they say that you're living with. You have to find ways that you can live with it, that you can stay calm and manage it. Because we're always bombarded with stimuli and other people for us to be aware of how it impacts us and then emotionally regulating. And once you've calmed yourself down and you're able to use your social brain, so to speak, rather than the uh, going around the train tracks, what do you say? How do you interact with them? I think it's always important to validate the, to listen and to validate the other person and to know that what they're going through is real. That in itself is very soothing. And then sometimes to think about, because if we think about anxiety, it often comes when a person doesn't feel safe. You know, is there a way, Not again, you're not responsible, but can you help that person feel safe? So you might be, as their partner, be aware that in the social interaction or when we're with these friends, they don't feel safe. And you might just go and sit next to them and hold their hand. Or if they're talking to you, you know, it's really just about listening and saying something that will help them feel safe. But as you keep saying, not to take responsibility, but definitely not to escalate it. So it's sort of asking how I can help, really. Yeah. So let's say, for example, your partner comes home and says, you know, I've lost my job and I don't know how we're going to survive. Instead of getting furious and angry, one is able to regulate and and be calm. And then you can just say something like, we'll get through this together. So you don't say, it'll be fine or don't be ridiculous. Just going, I'm with you. I know it's a real concern and we'll get through this together. That's what I mean by soothing. And do you think that anxiety can sometimes be a mask for other feelings? So we think it's anxiety, but actually there are other feelings hidden in there too. Often. And what sort of feelings could anxiety be masking in your experience? Well, the most common one is anger. And I think anger is the fight part of the fight or flight or fight. And so often people I've dealt with 
feel very anxious. Funny enough, I'm thinking of one patient in a relationship and she just was always scared to admit she was angry with her partner's behavior. She was scared that she would lose the relationship. So it was coming out of fear and never learning to assert herself or managing some of those issues. I think anger is a big one. I think anxiety sometimes is a way, I sometimes ask people if they're not changing, what is the secondary gain? Why are you holding on to your anxiety? And a very common one is I'll have less responsibility. So sometimes it's a fear of responsibility. And the most common one I hear is, you know, my partner will expect more of me. But the other one I've heard a number of times is life is hard enough. And if God can already see I'm not coping, he won't give me any more. So people have all these beliefs where anxiety is covering up something else. Because mm, I certainly when I've worked with people, I've found some very deep-seated beliefs like I'm not good enough or nobody's ever going to see me. I can see the benefit of breaking the train track. How do you then go from once you've broken the train track into combating these deep-seated beliefs? Well, if I talk about this patient, let's say with the anger with it, with the partner. So once, you know, she has learned to manage her emotions and she is starting, she then feels safe to start exploring. And then we go into more deep therapy. And wherever it goes, sometimes it's involved, like with her, it's, it's been involving actually an attachment issue and fear of intimacy and keeping, you know, at bay. And so I've been working with her probably for a year now since she finished the course. She still does worksheets. She now has those skills and she doesn't talk about being anxious anymore. So then we go deep. Some people, they don't really want that. They want more training, assertiveness training or anger management training. It depends what people want. But they're in a position, their brain is in a position to learn new skills. And that's the important part. So in a second, we're going to get practical and we're going to look at a problem that's been written in by a listener. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. There are all sorts of ways of getting involved with The Meaningful Life. You can go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts and you will find a way to sign up for our newsletter where you get information about my guests. And I also send every two weeks an interesting article. I've got one on denial that's currently going out. You can also participate in the program. If you go down, you'll see participate in the program and you can send us a letter. And this is the one that I've chosen to talk to Renee about. I'm really driven. It's not good enough just to complete my assigned work, but I have to do my very best and perhaps offer a few things not asked for, but I think would be useful. I suppose I'm a bit of a perfectionist. It causes problems with my partner when he doesn't see what needs to be done around the house. Sometimes he complains he can't sit down and relax because he says, I will get upset because the bed is unmade, the trash hasn't been taken down, and there's always tasks like painting the back bedroom for which I've been waiting for years. Since we've had children, the problems are getting worse because I worry about whether I'm giving our sons healthy food 
too much screen time or pushing them too hard. I worry about their grades, particularly the younger ones. I don't want to pass on all the worry and anxiety to the next generation. The more I think about it, the more I realise my perfectionism is handicapping me. Beyond a small burst of satisfaction when the job is completed, I'm always stressed and half the time overwhelmed. What do you think, Renee? Well, I felt sorry for this person, actually. That was my own emotional reaction. I had a lot of empathy for her. And I felt that she's doing a lot of what a lot of people do is blame themselves. I'm not saying she isn't anxious or stressed or overwhelmed, but I felt there were so many factors that actually come into it. So she's diagnosing herself and saying, I'm a perfectionist and this is what's causing the problem. And I agree she shouldn't pass it on and she doesn't want to pass it on to her children, but I think it's a much bigger problem than just her perfectionism. It's a bit like burnout where we live in a society where individuals are blamed for burnout, whereas the World Health Organization is saying it's the culture of organizations. So there's some culture in this home that she, you know, myself, I don't like beds unmade or trash not taken out. I don't think that's perfectionism. It doesn't have to be made with 90 degree corners, but I think those are reasonable requests. I'm not saying it has to be done the minute you wake up. But these are things couples need to work out and families need to work out. And if a partner's going, you just a perfectionist to expect me to take the trash out, you know, you should be happy if I do it every two weeks, that's not okay. So I think there are a few issues. There's the relationship, there is her low self-esteem that she's taken it all on board. I think there's also, I deal a lot with people, funny enough, that have organizational issues. I never thought as a therapist, I'd actually sometimes be working with people on how to put systems into their house because that's causing them stress. So I think we have to look at all the different levels and then really tease out at which point does it turn into perfectionism. So I don't think it's such a simple diagnosis. Lots of interesting things that I'd like to pull out of what you said. Let's start with the first one, self-blame. Tell me more about self-blame and how we combat it, because I think we do a lot of self-blaming, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Often when people have low self-esteem, and because everyone's talking about anxiety or mental health, you know, they think there's something wrong with me. And her, her partner might be telling her that. He's saying you can't relax because, and I'm exaggerating to make my point, you know, you just why are you upset if the trash hasn't been taken down and the painting in the back bedroom hasn't been done for years? Like, why, why are you upset? So that the low self-esteem needs to be worked on because she actually thinks, well, that's an unreasonable request. It's my perfectionism, you know? So what if it's not painted for years on end? So I would say that that is a big part of it. And I think a lot of us today, we, we doubt ourselves. We live in a world where there's so much ideal stuff put out there. At the same time, you know, how life should be, and we feel we're not living up to that. And, you know, as a parent, for example, you know, what kind of a parent are you if you're bringing anxiety in? And then the other side of it there is so much work on ourselves, which has a good side, but sometimes in like in this case, the self-diagnosis and the thinking that it's me has to be tempered and looked into a bit more deeply. So then we come to the low self-esteem. I mean, I think we could all probably do with a boost of self-esteem. So what would you suggest? Self-esteem is a very hard thing, I find, to help people mm. work on. Whichever yeah. approach you use, analytic work, CBT, it's a very hard one. So again, it depends a lot on the person, but I work with it a lot in terms of 
talking about a person's worth and not attaching it to what they achieve and what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to have an integral worth just because you're a human being? That's the way that I will sometimes talk about it and get people to think differently about themselves. I was just thinking what I do, and it's almost something sort of more just working with their unconscious in the sense that I offer acceptance, and it sounds a bit over the top, but love as well. Because mm. a yeah. lot of people tended to get, you know, and I count myself in that, they tended to get rather sort of acceptance and love that came with strings, so to speak. Yes, oh, that's true. That is very important. But yeah. I'm just thinking what we can do ourselves for that. If you know, you're thinking, yeah, I need a bit of acceptance and a little bit of uh, self-love. How could we translate that into something we could do in a practical sort of kind of way, rather than having to sit with a therapist, which obviously is wonderful, but not available to everybody? Well, the kind of visual that I give my patients and I use it myself is when a baby is born, or even before a baby is born, if a member of a family tells other people that they're pregnant, everyone's excited. Why are we excited? We don't care what this baby's going to look like or do. We just, there's some intuitive thing that a new person is coming into the world and we're all excited. And you can walk down the road and see a baby. We'll smile at that baby. We don't say, oh, how clever is the baby? Have you measured their IQ? We just know that a new person in the world has worth. Then as our kids grow up, we start looking at how they're doing and then we start comparing them. And then, But when they're first born, we don't care. We always just say as long as they're healthy. And even if they're not, we just love our babies. The other end of the scale is the same thing. If there is a, you know, a building collapse in Miami and there are, God forbid, you know, 200 people have died, no one says, look, we're only going to count 150 because 30 had dementia. They're not really productive. You know, some were actually low on the IQ score, and they didn't have a job. So we're going to say 100, we say 200 people died. We don't care about any of that because we know a life is a life. So that's the kind of thing I will talk about. You have intrinsic worth just because you're born. And sometimes we do inner child work. So people can do that even today. Just close your eyes. Imagine when you were born. Imagine what, how you imagine your parents were smiling or your grandparents, how people used to smile at you. And you didn't have to prove anything. You have worth. And that's the inner feeling because sometimes people don't have a job and they're not doing well. And we can't say, well, you see, you're still worth it. But that's not where worth comes from. It's just because we're a human being and we're born, we have, we have an innate sense of worth that we all understand. And look into your family because there might be somebody who did give you unconditional acceptance and love. You know, yeah. I had a grandmother who thought I was wonderful whatever I did. She wasn't really yeah. very interested in exams and things like that. She just thought I was wonderful. And, you know, what you talking just then reminded me of that. And I think in that visualization, we can imagine those people who, who thought we were great no matter what. Yeah. And the third thing you talked about was how to organise things around the house. So I've never thought of that one before, so tell me more about that. Well, I have a lot of couples that come in and they're fighting about this kind of thing. The beds aren't made, dinners aren't made, whatever. It's, an on, it's a very common thing that couples fight about. And often what I discover is that 
one of them, sometimes both, have what we call poor executive functioning. They don't know how to plan. They don't know how to organize. And sometimes they get through it before they're in a, in a relationship. And so their houses are quite chaotic. So I have couples that will fight about, you know, every night there's no dinner till 9 p.m. And then whoever's cooking throws in a few sausages. And they don't realize. And I once had someone who every day got a shock that she had to make dinner again, that she's an extreme case. But people live in, or in the morning, they're looking for their kids' socks for school, you know, and there's chaos. And so... Again, it doesn't help to just treat the symptoms of anxiety because every single day they're having the same chaos. So learning to put in simple systems to run your home more calmly in itself helps anxiety, where you know where your socks are in the morning, where you know that there's going to be dinner. You know, you feel safe and secure. There'll be dinner by 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., whatever you choose. But a bit of routine doesn't have to be rigid, a bit of structure, where it's not chaotic, there needs to be enough organization that there isn't chaos that helps everybody be calmer. So I have to say thank you for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. We will be talking more about the myths of parenting that promote anxiety in the bonus material. But before all of that, I have to ask you as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Well, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of meaning in my life, but I think the most, I was thinking about it. So the 3rd of August is actually my 41st wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Four children and nine grandchildren, and I'm close to it. They're all very much part of my life. So I have a lot of family life, and my mother only passed away a few months ago. So I've, I've had a lot of family richness in my life. So that's, that is. But also I wanted to talk about something I don't often talk about, and that is that I do have faith. And I think that that is a big thing, that I do believe that life has meaning. And I believe that human beings, we have intrinsic worth. And I believe that we all have a unique contribution and place in the world. And I think that that has helped me a lot to feel good about my choices or not to compare myself to others. That's also a sign of low self-esteem when you keep comparing yourself. And to really work on you know, my meaning and how I can contribute in life. My condolences about uh, your mother. Thank you. So if you want to hear the bonus material, we're going to talk about three particular myths about parenting that promote anxiety. You can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. Don't forget we're available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.